House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Today we have uh, an author that's written a book, The Potato Masher Murder, uh, Death at the hands of a jealous husband. Now, uh, I love that name. It really, uh, that's what stuck out for me. That's why I had to grab this guy. Uh, the author, who has a personal connection to the story, is uh, Gary Sosnicki. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. Hey, I think I got the name right. You did. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, uh, now, this is... Um, a true crime story um, that's, I guess, part of really your family in a sense. Um, first of all, uh, what what was the, uh, I don't know, catalyst? Like what actually started you on this journey uh, to find out about this story? Well, this, this was my great-grandmother, um, Cecilia Henderson Hornberg Ludwig. She was, she was married twice. And the Hornberg side of the family was, was my family. She would have been my mother's grandmother. And growing up um, at family gatherings, uh, Christmas and Thanksgiving and, and birthdays and so forth, uh, my little brother and I, we would, we would hear whispers about that this woman in the family had been murdered. And um, the, some of the comments wouldn't be terribly complimentary toward her. And we didn't really know much about it. And I always thought that, that um, you know, this was something I wanted to, to know more about someday. Well, I became a newspaper reporter when I, when I grew up later, a, 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 an editor and a publisher. And uh, um, around the time that the Internet came into being, which made research a little bit easier, I said, this is, this is something I, I, I want to find out about. I want to I research family trees on both sides of the family. So I, I finally got my mom to talk about this in, in 1996. And she, she told me a little bit about the murder. She didn't have the, the setting right. She didn't have the town right. She didn't have the year right. But she was close in, in all cases. So um, I, I found the name of a historian in LaPorte County, Indiana, uh, which is where uh, her family, my mother's family, had come from. And um, so I wrote the historian and, and said, hey, I'm trying to find something about a murder. And this was the name. It was Cecilia Hornberg. Uh, and, and I think it happened in 1905. I think it happened in Laporte. And uh, if you can find anything, uh, uh, you know, please let me know. And, of course, in, in this day and age, I'm, we're doing snail mail. I'm typing letters. <laughs> and uh, and uh, uh, I hear back from her, and she said, I can't find anything. And uh, I talked to my mom again, and she said, well, maybe it would be the next year. And that. So we tried the next year, and, and the, the researcher, uh, Fern Eddie Schultz, who is still on the job as uh, the state-appointed historian in LaPorte County, Indiana, she hit paid her. Um, she found stories in the uh, two Laporte daily newspapers uh, about the murder, even though it didn't occur in Laporte. She discovered that uh, it occurred in in Mishawaka, Indiana, on September 25, 1906. 
and uh, she sent me my first newspaper clippings. Now, the bonus in dealing with Fern was at the same time, Fern got uh, a letter, snail mail, from uh, a distant cousin of mine who I didn't know existed, uh, Paula Steiner, who lived in California. And Paula was interested in the murder, too. So Fern connected the two of us, and uh, we began a correspondence. So besides getting help from Fern and getting some initial newspaper clippings to find out about the murder, uh, which was big, big news in Northern mm-hmm. Indiana, um, uh, I, I met the first through, met by uh, virtually and, and through mail, I met the first relative who knew some anecdotal stories about the murder, too. So I was on my way. Wow. Um, so so what, what was being said? What, you said there was whispers. So first of all, yeah. what kind of whispers were going around? Like who, what were they saying about, uh, about her? Like was, was it that she, yeah, kind of fill us there. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Well, there were some references to uh, her uh, being uh, Miss Indiana uh, uh, to her, uh, um, oh, there was something else that was sarcastic that I can't think of at, at the moment. But but they were they were sarcasm, and I didn't really understand that. Well, this was a relative, and and she was murdered. So why why do they feel this way? Well, after I learned more about Cecilia, I I can understand that, and the connection from the family, I can I can I can understand that because uh, um, this 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 was a uh, um, Cecilia did not have the, the best reputation. I will talk about it <laughs> sure in a little bit. Wow. Jeez. Um, <laughs> so, so uh, okay, so let's, let's talk about the story. So what, what exactly um, did you find out about her? Well, I found that, that Cecilia, um, Cecilia was a victim of, of uh, domestic violence in, in both her marriages. Now, that's, that's something that, is uh, inexcusable. Uh, Her her first marriage broke up. uh, Well, first, Cecilia uh, was was seven months pregnant uh, and 15 years old when she married my uh, uh, great-grandfather. So, um, you know, that's not a good way to start a marriage, 15 and and, and 17, seven months pregnant. So, um, and and, uh, they had a second child, Lyle, a daughter, two years later. But but she uh, uh, the, she divorced my my great grandfather and uh, charged him with cruel and inhumane treatment, and according to the divorce decree, which Fern Schultz found for me in in the port, um, uh, he had beaten her at times with a steel pipe, and had held a gun to her head and so forth, and it was a justified divorce. Now there weren't any I I don't have a transcript or anything of the divorce case, so I don't really know. Um, if if she did anything to to uh, uh, to cause this to happen, but I know in the second marriage, which came a few years later to Albin Ludwig, and that is A L B I N B as in boy, not Albin as you might expect. Um, I know that Cecilia was a bit of a runaround, and uh, Cecilia um, had a reputation uh, uh, to get about town and. Um, um, Alvin caught her uh, in some compromising positions. Uh, once Alvin came home from from work, oh, let's see, Alvin was working at the uh, 
at the shoe factory in Mishawaka, Indiana. And, and uh, he came home from work early because he'd forgot his, uh, his pocket watch. And he found, uh, so this is about 7.15 in the morning, and he found Cecilia's clothes on the, on the bed and couldn't find Cecilia. And he, he looked around, and in the northwest bedroom on the opposite side of the, of the house, he found Cecilia in the closet with a border. So um, he, uh, uh, Albin, when he told this story, um, he never, he, he he never said whether or not they were dressed or not. But the implication was that he found them in, at least partially undressed in the in the closet because Cecilia's clothes were were sitting on the bed. So that was that was one of several instances where um, Cecilia was was getting about town. Oh. Um so how was she in that marriage like was he rough as well with her yeah he... he was yeah they both had ferocious tempers and uh, uh some of the language in the book is 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 fairly strong when you when there are references to to each other in in the book um both threatened to kill each other at at various times um um she threatened to poison Alvin. um uh, several times, uh, the witnesses testified to that, uh, uh, or knock his block off. And Albin, just a week before the murder, had told Cecilia's mother that that uh, if she left him, he would kill her. Uh, so you know, this was this was not a, a good a good marriage. And um, Albin uh, Albin had a ferocious temper, and and so did Cecilia. Well. Um... Okay, so back then, but we're talking in the early 1900s. Right, 1900. Uh, right, so I couldn't imagine. So uh, there was a different thought uh, towards a, a woman, right? Yeah. A, a female yeah. was more of a possession in a sense, like you own yeah. them now that they're married to you. It's, it's You're not, right. So did she really have a, a defense of saying that, you know, he beat me or he's cruel. Um, you know what I'm saying? Isn't that kind of something that people took for granted? Yeah, and I write about this in the, in the last chapter, uh, or maybe it's in the epilogue. Uh, I was surprised to learn that, that wife beating was acceptable uh, in, in America uh, through the 1860s. I think it was the, the first case where it, it wasn't acceptable was in 1872, and, and it surprised me, it was in Alabama, where, <laughs> where there was another Alabama, I've got good friends there, and and, and enjoying the beaches in Alabama, but um, that, that kind of surprised me, that that uh, um, that was the first case where, uh, where uh, uh, a man uh, got in trouble for beating his wife. And, um, you know, it's still, uh, even after that, uh, the courts and, and authorities and neighbors kind of looked the other way. Uh, it, so this was right at the time where maybe there was, uh, there'd be the modern woman where it became, um, where, where, where you really couldn't do that as easily as, as you could before. And it's terrible. And I, I've, I've talked about, I've been asked, you know, what, what's the main message in the book, I think the main message is, is, is one of domestic violence and extreme domestic violence. And, and I think that um, how, how awful it can be. And I, uh, you know, fortunately today there are, there are places where, where victims of domestic violence can turn 
uh, in our town, there's an agency called COPE where um, it can help uh, uh, women who are, uh, have been abused to, to go and, and I don't want to say hide out, but basically hide out and get help and, and get training for jobs and so forth. And Cecilia didn't have that option. But um, I'm not sure she, she would have wanted to be closed up any place because she was having too good a time. Yeah. It kind of, without knowing her, it almost sounds like she was giving out as much as she was getting. She know? was. Yeah, and oh. she, knew, she knew how to push all of Albin's buttons. Um, you know, Albin was seven years older than Cecilia, and actually Cecilia was bigger than her. Cecilia... Um, Cecilia weighed, uh, I think, 165 and uh, was about uh, 6'10", I'm sorry, 5'10 and 5'11". Her dad was 6'7", and uh, Albin was a good three inches shorter, so I'm sure she could be intimidating to him. <laughs> well, so what was their situation? Were they, were they living well? Were they uh, both working? Like, did they have a lot of money, no money? Were they, do you know anything about their situation? I, I do, yeah. Um, Albin had, um, they're both immigrant families. Um, Cecilia's family, uh, came from Scotland, uh, uh, early 1880s and settled in, uh, uh, Kingsbury, uh, which is a little town south of Laporte, Indiana. This whole story occurs in, in Northern Indiana, a, a part of the state uh, referred to as Michiana because it's uh, the tier of counties right below Michigan. And uh, they settled in in uh, Kingsbury, and the Ludwig family, Albin's family, came about the same time, 1880s, and settled in Elkhart, Indiana, which is two counties, two counties over. So Cecilia is is divorced from her first husband, and for a while she lives in a uh, as a, a boarder in a house where one of her sisters is a domestic, and then about. 1900, 1901, she gets a job as a domestic in, um, for Reverend Townsend in Elkhart. So that would be two counties over. So, so she has moved two counties over. So meanwhile, we've got Albin. And Albin had worked as a, a teamster for the city of Elkhart. But at 1900, 1901, he decides to buy a tavern. And it's called the Monument Saloon. And I think it was one of 25 taverns in in uh, Elkhart at the time, which to me, uh, you know, that if you've never been in business before, that can be kind of intimidating to have that kind of competition in a in a smaller city. So Albin Albin was um, not terribly successful at the saloon. It was right downtown. It was at the main in, uh, close to the main intersection of downtown Elkhart. There's a bank there now, but. Uh, he, he wasn't terribly successful, and uh, it had been said that uh, it pretty much broke him running the saloon. So somehow he and Cecilia met, and I, I can't figure out how they met because it wouldn't have been proper for a, a woman to go into a saloon in um, 1900, 1901, although I suppose that uh, Cecilia might have thought it had been proper, but... Um, it wouldn't have been proper. I'm thinking that perhaps they met at church because um, Albin uh, said that he was a good church worker. So that could be how they met. So they they got married, and they moved in with Albin's mother. Albin's father had uh, was a, a farm laborer and had died a sunstroke working in a cornfield 
a few years earlier. So they moved in with Albin's mother. And that didn't work real well because um, Albin, uh, I'm sorry, Cecilia was accused of striking uh, her, her mother-in-law uh, one week and then 10 days later um, striking her, um, her sister-in-law who lived next door. So I, and I may have the order mixed up, uh, uh, which she did first, but, but the mother-in-law booted them out of the house. So um, they got another house in, in Elkhart until they sold the saloon. And they moved 11 miles west to Mishawaka. Now, um, for your listeners who aren't familiar with Mishawaka, Indiana, I'm sure they're all familiar with South Bend, Indiana, the home of, of Notre Dame. And uh, Mishawaka today is kind of a twin city of, uh, of Notre Dame. Um, the, the, the two cities have, have grown together. But at one time, they were a few miles apart. And Mishawaka is, is much smaller than, than the South Bend. They're both on the St. Joseph River, though. So Albin, uh, Albin and Cecilia bought a home in a, in a new neighborhood at the, what then was the north edge of Mishawaka in a pretty nice neighborhood. I think they were paying, te- um, paying uh, $10 a month. They weren't paying very much on the, on the home. Um, and, and Albin got a, a job in in a uh, uh, at the at the shoe factory, and he got in trouble a few times at the shoe factory for his temper, and apparently he wasn't very popular with employees. So, you know, these guys both have ferocious tempers. And and our point I, I like to make about the book: there are no heroes in the book. It's it's a fascinating story of, of a marriage gone bad, two marriages gone bad, and a and a particularly gruesome murder. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. So this is the scene uh, of, of what happens up to really a few months before the murder. Well, you know, one th- oh, sorry, go ahead, John. Oh, yeah, I was just going to ask, I mean, one thing, you know, often with like domestic abuse is there's a lot of sort of psychological <clears throat> grooming or build up to the the events that often get reported, like the violence and that kind of thing. And I know you're like looking back on this case, you know, you know, many, many years ago, was it hard to sort of try to figure out how to represent that um, in your book? Or did you struggle with that idea? I'm, I'm just curious. You know, as a, as a, as a newspaper reporter, and um, I, I tried to be as objective as I could and, and, do a, a lot of research over the years, and heck, it, it took 20, 24 years for me to get the thing finished, you know, starting and stopping and starting and stopping. It wasn't until I retired that I really got going on it. And and uh, um, so I tried to be objective and tell the story uh, as objectively as as I could, as, as I always have, and, and keep doing research until I, I ha- thought I had enough for a book. Um, so... Um, you know, I I didn't I didn't struggle with it. I, I was just I was just telling the telling the story with both sides both sides of the story. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, what? I'm I'm a fiction writer, so I'm always kind of thinking, what's the psychological motivation? <laughs> That's where I'm going. Yeah, and I don't think I could write fiction after after 43 years in newspaper. <laughs> it would be very very hard. I I envy you. I don't think I could do it. Yeah, I don't understand it myself. I interview a lot of fiction <laughs> writers, and I I can't. I can't figure this out, but 
you know. Fascinating. <laughs> uh, well, what happened to the kids? Because she said that uh, she had two kids with the first husband, uh, your great-grandfather. So did she bring them with her to the new marriage? Were they around he, during all of this? The boy, my grandfather, uh, William Hornberg, he went with the father. And the father, Charlie Hornberg, they, they went into southern, southern Michigan. The, the daughter, Lyle, spent half the time with Sisui and Albin in Mishawaka and um, the rest of the time in, uh, in Kingsbury with her, with her grandparents. And I, I, I know this is at, at one point a neighbor uh, in Mishawaka wrote the grandmother in Kingsbury and said, uh, you need to come and, and get your, your granddaughter because she is, um, um, she is outside in the front yard until six o'clock at night until, until someone comes home because the, the father's working and, and the mother is, is never around. So, yeah. Um, let me, let me tell you, let me, let me lead into what, what really started things tumbling as, as if they weren't tumbling already in that. And that, and since you mentioned kids, and that would be in June of, um, 1906, that's when Cecilia's younger sister, Jean, moved into the house with her two kids. So you've got a, a nine-year-old girl, and you've got a, a little boy who's not quite seven, so he's six. And you have a, a woman, uh, four years younger than Cecilia, but Cecilia had several sisters, and, and Jean had abandoned her husband in Nevada, where he was a mining engineer in the in the gold industry, and and so she had left her husband. So you, she was kind of an an, an actor in that uh, that she got uh, she gave Cecilia the opportunity to spend more time away from home. Cecilia and Jean um, ran around town, ran around Mishawaka, ran around South Bend uh, all summer. And uh, uh, this was this was tough on Albin because he'd say, he, he would complain to her, you know, I don't mind if you go out, but I want to go out with you. Uh, I never get to go out with you. You're going out uh, all the time with, with, with your sister and, and you're going to South Bend and, and uh, uh, every day. And, and, you know, if, if, if I could go out with you three times a week, or if I could go out with you on Sundays or something, I'd like that. And, and you know, that didn't happen. So um, Jean's appearance really was a trigger. Um, there was, there was a, a, a man by the name of Fred Young who, who was from Kingsbury, and uh, I think he was 23 years old. So he, w- he was probably closer to Jean's age than to Cecilia's. But he was he was working in in Mishawaka, and uh, he was a widower, and uh, he began hanging out at the house, and uh, he'd come over for dinner, and uh, um, he'd come over to to see the women, and and Albin thought that Fred was having an affair with Cecilia, uh, and my impression is that. Fred probably had a thing going with with Jean. Uh, I don't I don't know how how much of a thing you know if it was a true affair, but I think that's what was going on. And 
And Fred always claimed, uh, he claimed in the trial that that uh, uh, he was coming to visit uh, Mrs. Ellsworth. He always referred to her as Mrs. Ellsworth. But this was this was again, it was another setup in the in the murder. And and uh, the night before the the murder is when things really started turning bad. What well, what exactly happened where he actually? I I, I know some of the, the the story here, but what 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 do you think? Um, made him go over the edge where he was going to actually kill her. I think it, I think it started the night before. Um, the night before, they had been gone. Uh, uh, Cecilia and Jean had been gone in the afternoon uh, shopping for shoes. And they were only home for about an hour, just about long enough for, uh, for them to cook dinner. And, uh, and they had dinner. And then they took off again. And, uh, and they told Alvin that they were going to to the drugstore to get um, get some iodine and glycerin, which Cecilia used to, to treat her sore feet, and uh, and Cecilia asked Elvin for a for a, a bottle, a, a medicine bottle, which which he cleaned out and gave her, and, and so they took off, and Elvin was terribly suspicious, so he followed them that night, and he he followed them surreptitiously. That's a word I like, surreptitiously. <laughs> He, he he followed them to the to the drugstore, and uh, watched from across the street and saw that they got the bottle filled with with the medicine. And instead of coming back home, um, they took off toward downtown Mishawaka, which is across the across the St. Joseph River, and um, and that's a 15 minute walk from the house. I know because I have walked it to time it. So they're going they're going across the river uh, to the what was called the Four Corners of Mishawaka in those days. It was the, the intersection of, of Main Street and 2nd Avenue, which, which today is, is known as Lincolnwood. So they, they go to that intersection, and Albin is also at that intersection, and they still haven't seen him. So Albin is, is, is underneath an, an awning uh, on the southeast corner, and he's watching the women uh, the women come down on the east side of the street, and they peek into a tavern through the window, and then they go across the street, and they meet a man on the on the northwest corner of the intersection. And this man, uh, all we know is his name is Ackerman, and a good-looking young man. But they meet Ackerman, and we know that he worked on the on the Mishawaka Bridge, and um, so Alvin referred to him as a, a bridge man. Well, Alvin Alvin was, you know, in, insanely jealous. In fact, a week before, he'd gone to the newspapers in South Bend and wanted them to do a story about his, his wife being a runaround, uh, which came out after the murder. And so so uh, Alvin was insanely jealous, and he saw this going on. Well, he noticed a, a policeman by the name of James Anderson uh, uh, lean against a telegraph pole on the, uh, on the corner. So, so he goes up to the policeman. And says, you know who those women are? And he points to them uh, across the street, kitty corner across the street. And uh, it's dusk now on this on this Monday evening. And and El- and the policeman walks into the intersection, and uh, and comes on back and says, well, th- I know that's that's your your wife and her sister. I see them around town all the time. And of course, I I'm, I'm sure that Alvin's thinking, yeah, I know you do because I, that's where they are all the time. So Alvin tells the policeman. I am going to put a stop to that, and if anything happens, I want you to remember it. 
And, you know, that certainly sounds like a, a threat. So um, the policeman suggests that Albin go on home. Well, Albin went on home, but he also saw the women go up to, uh, with Ackerman in tow, um, go up to a boarding house about half a block north. And at that boarding house, Ackerman went in and got Fred Young. So it's another appearance by Fred Young. Uh, so Fred Young and the two women walk back to the house. And again, this is probably about 8 o'clock at, at night. And uh, so they're back at the house, and there's some quarreling going on, of course, because Alvin wants to know uh, who they were talking to, and the women deny that, that they were they were even went that far. And... Uh, um, so they have they have they quarrel off and on for for the rest of the evening. I think till about eleven o'clock before Fred leaves, and uh, uh, Alvin is just beside himself. He goes next door and and talks to a neighbor. Uh, uh, Alvin has 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 male friends on on both sides of the of the house, and he goes talks to a neighbor, and the neighbor tries to get him to calm down. And there is some talk that that. Um, uh, Gene is going to leave the next day, and that perhaps Cecilia might go too. But there's there's no decisions made. So um, that leads to the day of the murder, the next morning. So yeah, this is um, this is interesting because so in your mind after that kind of a night and and their history, do you think it was in Albin's brain to actually want to kill her? I don't think so. Albin claimed continuously, even after she was was dead, that he loved her, and 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 he didn't he didn't want her to leave, and he he would he claimed that that he would put up with this. Um, Albin told her, and I don't remember if it was that that night or or the morning of the murder, and said, you know, if if you want to leave and go to South Bend for a week, like like you like you do at times and and come on back that's fine i would welcome you back but if you if you uh uh if you're going away permanently um then i'm going to sell everything i'm i'm you know going to give back the house and so forth and that was a bone of contention with with cecilia because um alvin said you would get half of the proceeds from from selling everything and she wanted everything hmm why, why would she think she can get everything? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, well, she, she could be pretty intimidating. And that was, that was part of the, of the final fight that they had the next day. Yeah. So, so they got up the next day and they just got into a fight right off the bat, or did they make up first? Well, um, Cecilia wasn't sleeping in the same bedroom with Albin. Cecilia was sleeping in the in the bedroom next door with with her sister, and uh, the the women got up early. and And Albin, I find this curious. He slept at nine o'clock in the morning before he got out of bed. And you know, if it, if I'd been under this kind of stress, you know, I would have been up most of the night. But but Albin slept at nine o'clock in the morning, and then he was kind of ticked off that they didn't make breakfast for him. And later on, he admitted, well, I had made, uh, Cecilia hadn't made breakfast for him for a year. So, um, <laughs> that was kind of, that was kind of a, a false, a false <laughs> statement. But, uh, but they, they, they had a few quarrels that morning. 
But Cecilia said she had decided to leave, and, and Jean was leaving. Cecilia said that she would leave if, if she had a trunk. Well, Albin said, I will, I will give you my trunk, but again, you don't have to leave. You know, I love you. I'd, I'd, I'd like you to stay, or I'd like you to come back. So this would go off and on, and there wasn't really any, any violence at, at that point. But it, uh, Cecilia went upstairs and did some packing, and Jean went upstairs to, to her room and, and did some packing. And, um, oh, about, oh, normally they have the noon meal, that, that, that they call dinner, and uh, they, they, they'd have that around noon, but I think it was 11, 11.30, when, when Celia said that, uh, uh, sent Albin on an errand, that uh, uh, she needed gasoline for the cook stove. And this is something that just amazes me, that gasoline cook stoves were so common in that era. I don't know if you guys in your research have, have found that out, but, but I, I was just appalled. I mean, can you imagine <laughs> lighting gas? And I guess it was a different type of gasoline, not, not, the, not the mixture that we... we Put in, right. <laughs> put in my old pickup, but, but yeah, but gasoline cook stove. So Alvin went went to the grocery store to buy gasoline and bought two gallons of gasoline. He also bought himself a, a, a bottle of brandy at at, a, at another store at the drug store. He bought the brandy, and uh, and came back home and and uh, they put a little bit of of the gasoline into the cook stove and and you know that's that's an important point for later on. Uh, that there was still some gasoline left, and then Alban Alban went next door to to one of his man friends, and and the wife was there too, and and this this friend was also named um, Fred. It was Fred Metzger, and he said, "Fred, I'm going to kill myself," and uh, uh, Cecilia is leaving, and I just I just can't stand this, and and Fred says, "Look, he said we need we you need to go see a lawyer. I'll go with you to see a lawyer." Well, who are we going to see? And they decide. Which lawyer they're going to go see, and uh, uh, and Elvin, Elvin, see, Elvin didn't go to work that day. He didn't go to the shoe factory that day. So, but but Fred was going to work. So he said, "When I come home from work today, we'll we'll go see this uh, this lawyer. Um, don't kill yourself. You know, we'll go see this." So he goes back home, and dinner is ready. They had uh, uh, boiled meat and potatoes and and bread and butter and and some gravy. Boiled meat was a, a common meal for uh, immigrant families. It was popular with immigrant families, and I, I saw in the newspapers that uh, you could buy boiled meat. It was, it was advertised. So um, they, they, had, they had dinner, and now you get to where the stories separate. Gene uh, uh, has left, and, and the stories agree on that. So you've got Elvin and Cecilia and the two kids uh, eating dinner. Now, what happens next is where we've got the big mystery. A potato masher is involved in both scenarios, but um, two different scenarios about what happened next. Do you, it, it, so um, obviously it's, it's his story and um, someone else's story. Is there one that you sort of buy into more? I think there... They are both plausible stories up to a certain point. The, the, the prosecution story is that Albin grabbed a potato masher out of the kitchen and chased Cecilia upstairs, knocked her in the head, 
dragged her into the closet, um, went downstairs at some point, and and got a tin can full of gasoline or kerosene, brought it upstairs, uh, poured it on Cecilia, and set her on fire. He then closed the closet door, put a rocking chair in front of the closet, and sliced himself up with a uh, a straight razor. He he had wounds on his neck, uh, on his arms, on his wrists. He had a deep wound on his on his calf. Um, I went three inches deep, almost to the bone. Um, there is some there is some difference of opinion whether he he started cutting himself up before he he went downstairs to get the gasoline and the kerosene, uh, and uh, uh, or or whether he just had whether he started it or whether he did it all afterwards. But there's got to be some explanation for the blood that was found. Um, throughout the house, uh, on the on the banister, uh, on the stairs, and on the door jams, and so forth. So that's one side of the story. Alvin's side of the story was that um, he he got sick to his stomach uh, after drinking coffee that tasted peculiar. Cecilia had served him coffee at the dinner table, and Alban wondered if he had been poisoned, since that was a threat that Cecilia had made before. So Alban's story is that then he didn't feel good. He went out onto the porch and, and sat for a while and, uh, and was starting to really feel sick, like he might throw up or might have to uh, defecate. And uh, he goes out um, to the backyard and gets the slop jar. Apparently, they didn't have plumbing upstairs. I'm not sure if they had plumbing downstairs, but they didn't have plumbing upstairs. So he gets the slop jar, which sits out in the backyard during the day, and he brings it up to, to the bedroom, and he sits, sets it by the closet door, and he goes, lays down on the bed. So he's laying down on the bed, and this is, this is Alvin's story, the defense story. And as he lays down on the bed, he, he starts, you know, oh, woe is me, she's leaving, and my marriage is falling apart, my life is falling apart, and all of a sudden he realizes there's a, a insurance policy that that he has on uh, on himself that would make um, Cecilia a, a beneficiary. I think it's a $1,000 policy. He's got to find that policy because he, he wants to grab that and, and change it to his to his mother, the beneficiary to his mother. So he looks in the dresser where he thought the policy was, and he couldn't find it. So then he goes into this closet, and it's a walk-in closet. It's about five feet by eight feet, and I think I have been in that closet. I am not 100% sure if I was in the right house, but uh, if it wasn't that closet, I've been in the, in the closet of the house next door. And, and uh, he goes in the closet and starts looking through the trunk. Okay, so the defense story then is that, Cecilia comes upstairs, and and says, uh, uh, "What are you? What are you? What are you going to do on this property?" And and Cecilia is carrying the potato masher upstairs. What are you going to do on the property? And and uh, Elvin says, "Well, you can you can have half." And he uh, and she swears at him, and uh, uh, she's she's got a, a salty language. She swears at him and says, "I want it all." Well, only a court will give it all to you. Uh, you can you can have half. And then she looks down at him. What are you doing? And says, I'm looking for the insurance policy. 
and she swears at him again and takes a swing at him with the potato masher. So in this case, this scenario, she's the one swinging the potato masher. He wards it off. It drops to the floor. He grabs her by the neck, pushes her against the wall, and her head hits a old-fashioned wire hook uh, on the wall. I, I remember my grandparents having a row of iron iron hooks on the uh, closet wall. Her head hits that, and he's choking her. She falls to the ground. The kerosene lantern falls to the ground and, and breaks, and that's what catches her on fire. And Elvin doesn't remember a thing that happened after that. At, 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 uh, conveniently. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and the newspaper the newspaper reporters, one of the newspaper reporters said, you know, that's a that's a believable story, up to the point that he doesn't remember anything like that. <laughs> you know, and he at, at at one point he claimed that, that uh, Cecilia was the one who had had cut him up. And uh, you know, some of the some of the readers of the book uh have said, Well, I think the boyfriend came and, and cut him up. You know, I've had two readers tell me that I think the boyfriend <laughs> came and, and cut him up. So um you know, the fire department comes because uh, a neighbor sees, sees smoke coming, coming out, of the, out of the window. And the fire department comes, and uh, um, the, the front door is locked. And uh, uh, so they, they find a ladder. There's a house under construction down the street. They find a ladder, and, and rescuers start, start going in. Actually, this is before the fire department comes. The rescuers start going in, and, and they find Albin... Uh, in a pool of blood uh, on the floor in front of the window, between the window and the bed. And um, then the fire department, and, and they pull him out of, the, pull him out of the, the house, which, you know, there's there's smoky room. They pull him out of the house, and uh, uh, he goes out through the front window. And then the fire department comes, and, and uh, they bring a hose up and uh, a horse-drawn uh, hook and ladder truck, and uh, they open up the closet door because that seems to be where the fire is at. And they find this charred body uh, in, a, in a cramped position on the floor. And the fire chief testified that she looked like a hard-baked chicken. <laughs> and, and the newspapers softened that up. Uh, uh, you imagine, and even what they wrote still would have upset people in the in the afternoon reading that right before dinner but yeah it looked like a hard-baked chicken and and her clothes were completely burnt off except for iron corset stays and uh and i think one of her earrings was some of her her jewelry was melting i mean it it was really really a brutal way to go to Mm -hmm. to be burned to death after the head wound. so you know there there's arguments on both sides Part of Albin's argument makes sense, and uh, um, part of uh, you know, and and the prosecution argument makes sense. Well, now the sister had gone; she wasn't around then. She had gone. She had gone to get a livery to haul the trunks to the to the train station. Um, I, I I believe they were going by train. The train station was just a block away, but but the, obviously they needed some help getting the trunks to the to the right. train station. So she was gone. The kids were at home, and this is this is curious. The uh, uh, the little boy and the uh, and the little girl uh, under Alvin's story. When he was sitting on the front porch, the kids asked for money to get candy, 
And Cecilia, who was sitting inside the house, said, Alvin, don't be stingy. Give him some money. So he gave them money. And a neighbor actually saw them leave Alvin and head, head across the field uh, or head down the street um, to, uh, to get candy. So a neighbor saw them do that. Um, but when, um, when the fire started and the next door neighbor, Catherine Brand, when she saw smoke coming out of the window, she went to the house and the little boy was, was in the house and at the back door. And he said, uh, he, he said something to the effect that there's been a fight. So I'm not sure how of the, of the, of the timeline here how he would have gotten back inside if they did go to get candy. But I know, um, and this is fascinating to me, that the Laporte newspaper um, reported a few days later that the little boy may have witnessed the murder. And that, that, the, that, the fact that the Laporte newspaper said that makes sense to me because if, if Gene took the kids back to Kingsbury, um, Gene might have been talking about this, and, and the kids might have been talking about it. So that's how the Laporte newspaper would have been to report that. But uh, one of the coolest things about my research was that uh, I have met that little boy's son, and, and, and he lives in California. And uh, uh, my wife had suggested that I, I, I needed to uh, – my wife is a professional copy editor, and she read all 12 drafts of the book, and she suggested at one point I needed to, to – to, find a little more color in the book. And I, you know, I don't know what happened to the little boy. In 24 hours, I, I found the son. And in 48 hours, I was inter interviewing him. And we have met three times now. And, and so he's a, he's a new relative. And, and uh, we email about once a week. So um, fascinating. But, you know, he, he, the little boy never said anything about it to any of the family mm -hmm. because the, the murder was not known to, to, uh, to the son. Wow. Um, but now, so he got arrested, but and actually he, was charged, right? He was he was charged with first degree murder. Um, the the uh, and was indicted on multiple counts. The the uh, uh, the prosecutor uh, uh, didn't miss an angle. You know, every every kind of angle he could think of, he he was charged with. But it took a while for the trial because Alvin was in the hospital for for quite a quite a long time in Epworth House Hospital in South Bend. And uh, and the newspapers reported, uh, you know, one day he was going to die, the next day he was improving, back and forth, back and forth. You'd have one newspaper uh, report that he was dying, and the next and the other newspaper would say he was getting better. And this the story was being covered. Uh, it was it was there were two weekly newspapers in Mishawaka, one of which I didn't have access to the files, but uh, two daily newspapers in Elkhart, two daily newspapers in South Bend. And, and two daily newspapers in Laporte, and all of them covered this like a dog with a bone. So, it was it was it was fascinating. But the the trial was delayed. I think on his first court appearance, Alvin was was uh, carried into the uh, courtroom on a stretcher, um, and Alvin was being treated besides possible gangrene in his in his leg. Uh, he also was being treated for burns to his throat. So. Um, he ingested poison. It, it, it makes sense that he ingested poison, whether it was in the coffee, or whether it was um, whether he drank from the bottle of uh, iodine and glycerin uh, in a suicide attempt. Um, you know, he, that was that was one of his ailments. 
but but yes, he was tried. Um, it was it was a, an exciting trial. Uh, Albin testified. His um, his testimony, uh, I think, uh, his testimony uh, took up eighty four pages of the trial transcript. Uh, it was it was massive. The the policeman, uh, James Anderson, who who had been at the intersection the night before, uh, he he was called to the stand four times. Neighbors were called to the stand. Trial went for five days, and uh, um, but the the jury only took uh, four or five hours to to come to a verdict, and he was convicted of second degree murder, uh, sentenced to. Um, to life in prison. And, you know, Jean could not be found for the trial. She was not a witness. She headed back, apparently, to Nevada, where her husband was, because he had discovered gold. And I think if Jean had testified, because Jean had witnessed Albin's temper in all these cases, if Jean had testified, I think there's a chance that Albin would have been convicted of first-degree murder and, and sentenced to hang. There were, there were uh, I researched the uh, other... Uh, wife murders, uh, with finger quotes, their wife murders um, of, of that decade in Indiana. And uh, I found five cases of first-degree murder, and three of those five were sentenced to hang. So Alvin was very lucky that Gene was not present at the trial. So uh, so he got put away. Did he ever get out, or was that? Yeah, yeah 16, 16 years. Yeah, you know, that that's pretty common in the, in the cases that, that I researched. Um, if they didn't hang you, you got out after 16 years, regardless of what your sentence was. <laughs> and that, wow. and apparently, apparently wow. that was apparently that was pretty common in, in federal cases too. But yeah, 16 years he got out. Uh, uh, he was sponsored. His parole was was sponsored by uh, an Elkhart policeman who had broken up a, a fight when when Cecilia was being choked by Alvin years before. But he sponsored him. And put him to work in a restaurant. He was in the restaurant business for years. I think he even owned his own restaurant. He lived a long life. He lived to 84, 85. Uh, and uh, at, at one point, um, according to one of the relatives I, I met through my research, um, he may have worked as a, uh, uh, as a door-to-door salesman, coffee and tea salesman, which was, which was still, still a little bit common even when I was young. Yeah. And uh, the... Uh, the uh, this uh, this relative, her her uh, aunt, her, her great aunt, you know, was scared to death when he came to the neighborhood because <laughs> he was background. Mm. And the kids, what happened to them? So if he got put away and the mother's dead, uh, where did they go? Well, um, William, my my grandpa was already living with with his uh, with his father, and the father remarried, and uh, and had a good marriage, uh, and uh, that's who my mom knew as her grandparents because my mom wasn't born until 1919. So that was, that was, uh, you know, uh, 13 years after the, after the yeah. wow. and, and Lyle, I think lived to 101. And I, and I, you know, I reread the book periodically, especially before an interview, like you guys today, <laughs> I reread the book and say, well, what have I missed here? What I, what, have, what, have, what do I need to know? And, uh, Lyle didn't die until, 1996, and she was 101. And I wondered, did my mom know Lyle? Because I didn't know Lyle. Did my mom know Lyle? Did my mom know that that her aunt died that year? Is that the reason that she felt safe in telling me a little bit about the murder? 
you know, that that's just something I came up with rereading the book last week. Hmm. Yeah, there's so many, so many angles to it. You know, you just it's crazy. And uh, well, you know, a hundred years from now, your your offsprings will be writing about you. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, uh, it'd be nephews and nieces, their offsprings. Yeah. yeah. Oh, <laughs> now, I, I owned a newspaper, so I didn't have time to have kids. Oh, well, it's probably yeah. It's it's, it's okay. Um, yeah. Well, um, so now, do you have a website or a place that you want people to come find out about you or your book? I, or I, I have a, a Facebook page. It's it's Gary Sosnicki hyphen author. I have several Facebook pages, but that's one where I write mostly about the book. Gary Sosnicki author. S O S N I E C K I. I'm also on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. And you know all these things that that uh, you have to learn when you when you do your first book and you're in the middle of a pandemic. So uh, I, I, I learned about Reddit. I learned about Reddit. Uh, a, a lot of things, uh, and and of course I bought a Zoom account. A lot of things I've had to learn. Oh, uh, Reddit's dangerous. I'm warning you. Yeah. <laughs> Some real mean people there. Reddit and YouTube. Look out. Yeah. 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 Well. Anyway, it's been fantastic. Um, Thank you. It's been a pleasure having you and um, the book. And we're going to have, of course, your book and your website. We'll have it all linked to ours as well. So people Thank you can very much. find you with one click. Absolutely. Uh, the book is called The Potato Masher Murder. And the author was our guest, Gary Sosnicki. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Thank you Gary. very much, guys. prepared legacy food storage the best way to protect your family is by being prepared go now to legacyfoodstorage.com use coupon code HOM15 now for 15% off quick go more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.